Welcome to RAGE, the podcast of the University of Denver's Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE for short. I'm the show's host, Tom Romero, and I'm a professor of law and history here at DU, as well as IRISE's director. For those of you that have been following, following, RAGE explores the risks and rewards of being a critical race scholar in higher education. In an era of black lives, dreamers, the Flint water crisis, Standing Rock, and vigorous backlash against these movements, everyone is seemingly talking about race. Critical scholarship and public engagement by race scholars in op-eds, blogs, and essays have often been front and center in these formulations, as has been a resulting backlash or failure to critically engage with some of these insights. Indeed, in many cases, the work of race scholars has often been marginalized and silenced while policies, practices, and discourses of colorblindness and post-racialism have reigned supreme on our campuses and in our politics. The result has often left race scholars silently raging at the intractability and inability of higher education, and our larger society for that matter, to take racial privilege and anti-racist discourse seriously. For this episode, which is our final episode of season one, I'm here to talk about such issues with Dr. Francis Aparicio. Dr. Aparicio is the Emeritus Professor of Latino and Latina Studies and and Emeritus Professor of Spanish and Portuguese at Northwestern University. Dr. Aparicio's research interests include Latinx literary and cultural studies, the cultural politics of Latinx languages, Latinx popular music and dance, literary and cultural translation, cultural hybridity, transnationalism, Latinidad, and inter-Latinx subjects. She is author of Listening to Salsa and has edited numerous anthologies including Tropicalizations, Musical Migrations, and The Ratlitch Companion to Latin, Latino Latina Literature in 2012. Thank you, Dr. Aparicio, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for the invitation, Tom. H- how are you doing? I'm fine. Yeah. I, I know you brought the cold from Chicago, yeah. so <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's May for those of our listeners that will probably be listening to this in, in yeah. June, but yeah. uh, it's pretty chilly out there today. It is. It's very cold. For yeah. I thought Southwest would be much warmer <laughs> than Chicago, but it, we're all going through these you know, weather problems. So. It's the new, the new normal, right? The new normal yeah. and a very late winter. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, well, we're, we're experiencing yeah. the same yeah. sorts of yeah. things, so. Yeah. But I think it's warmer than Chicago still, so. It, you know, it, it's in the 30s, but it feels warmer. Yeah. Yeah, than Chicago in the 30s, so. And the warmth, the warmth of the students and the campus life here, that, that has been really nice, too. Well, we're, we're really thrilled to have you on yeah. campus and, and to kind of have you share your mm-hmm. your next project uh-huh. with us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our listeners uh, our listeners who have been listening to this mm-hmm. podcast mm-hmm. Uh, for the previous eight episodes um, have really been interested in in examining and hearing about mm-hmm. about the journey of um, our, our subjects and, and our conversations mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to higher education. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that you can share with us your journey to becoming mm-hmm. A professor um, at all the institutions that you've been at. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean, basically, I was telling the class this morning to a little bit about how I ended up teaching literature, because I, um, as in college, I went to uh, Indiana University for the music school. I used to play the piano, and I wanted really badly to be a wonderful pianist. Um, and two years into the program, I realized I didn't have the talent. I didn't have the perfect pitch, I didn't have the rhythm, I just didn't have the musical memory I needed. So I, I uh, dropped out, right? Um, and I sat on a bench after I dropped out of the music school and looked through the catalog to see what I thought I could do well and that I had some passion for, right? So I ended up uh, double majoring in conflict and Spanish. 
Um, and after being in Spanish for a year, I realized, too, I didn't want to teach high school Spanish. I couldn't deal with the adolescents, you know, as yeah. students. So uh, I changed the track and decided to do the literature track and then went on to get the PhD so that I could teach at the university. So it wasn't something that I had planned ahead of time, you know, it just kind of happened little by little. Um, I ended up going to Harvard University for my PhD in Latin American literature at the time. But uh, while I was a grad student, I was invited to teach the first ever Spanish for Heritage Language Learners class uh, in the Spanish department because they had too many students who wanted to take the class and they only had one professor. So they invited me to teach a second section. And out of that experience, I realized that there was like a body of Latino students, you know, not only in Harvard, but I thought all over the country yeah. that were hungry, hungry to insert themselves in history, hungry to learn about their culture, hungry to read uh, the poetry and the literature and the fiction and the novels that people like him, like them, you know, were, were writing. And, um, and in the Spanish for Heritage language class, there was really no textbooks, nothing at the time had been written to teach that class. So I would actually have students write essays and then I would use the mistakes that the students were making and I would make exercises out of that, right? So so it was a very, very pioneering moment, you know, for some of these courses to, to be developed. Uh, now we have an industry around, you know, textbooks for Spanish, for Latino students and all of that. Um, but at the time it was really very, very new. Um, and then I finished my dissertation, um, moved to Stanford University, and there I was there only as a lecturer for two years, but I was able to work with Tomas Ibarra Frausto, who was a very important Chicano scholar at, uh, now and at the time. And uh, we taught for the first time, we taught a course, a team taught course on Chicano Riqueña studies yeah. and literature and culture. So that was my first uh, sort of, um, in my initiation into thinking about Latinidad you know, in terms of Chicano-Riqueño intersections. Um, it was a great class for me to be able to read Chicanos next to Puerto Ricans and so on. And it was a, a really, really uh, uh, important experience. And, and my time at, at in California was really important too because it really opened my eyes up to, to the Chicano community and to the history of Chicanos. Uh, you know, Aslan as a concept, the whole idea of occupied, the occupied Southwest. And I was able to start making connections, you know, between that and Puerto Rico and my own experience having grown up on the island of Puerto Rico. Um, and then I moved to uh, University of Arizona where I taught for five years. And there I came in to direct, in fact, the Spanish for uh, Latino students um, uh, program, which is the largest one in the country. And there, I, it was really fascinating for me also as a Puerto Rican woman to be in the Southwest, to be in Tucson, 80 miles from the border uh, with Nogales, to begin to understand the violence that was happening locally, you know, kids getting shot at the border, mm -hmm. uh, that would only make it to the local news, but it wouldn't make it to the national news. Um, I, I struggled to insert myself within the Chicano community. There were some tensions with me being there too, because I wasn't Chicana, I wasn't local, right? Yeah. All of this stuff, so that was really interesting for me too. Um, but again, I, I learned so much about Central Americans. I learned about the sanctuary movement, right? This was the 80s, so it was the time when all of these things were happening too. And, um, and I, I really, it really expanded my knowledge, right, of, yeah. of Latinos in general and of the border in particular. Uh, then I moved to Mich University of Michigan uh, where I came in. I helped to uh, develop the Latino Studies program there too. 
I taught in the Spanish department. I became totally burnt out after 10 years. You were there too at the time. Uh, but it was a very exciting moment. It was a very exciting decade. This is the decade when the culture wars were going on, right? Uh, I remember teaching the race and racism class with Robin Kelly. Mm -hmm. uh, we had 200 students, a great team of teaching assistants, right, from different disciplines. Uh, it was a very exciting moment because we were in the struggle, right? And we were also opening up the canon right in many ways not only in our departments but also overall academic you know in all universities uh, i still remember that was the time when stanford university was proposing a non-western canon and everybody in the country was freaking out right so so it was a very exciting moment for all of us but also very difficult because it was a lot of work um, but also at Michigan is where I ended up being able to mentor so many wonderful grad students who are now professors and they're tenured and they're writing wonderful books and they're doing their own classes and teaching their own students. And to me, that legacy that I was able to be there as part of you know, a pioneering group of scholars who were opening up and training other students to continue the field, right, was really, really important. Um, so, and then after that, I moved to, you know, to Chicago and I, I was very excited to be able to be in a big city with a big Latino community yeah. like Chicago after Ann Arbor. Yeah. <laughs> and that really helped me also uh, begin to establish more connections between the university and the community. So when I was there directing the Latino Studies program, I created a Lectures in the Community series, which we would bring speakers from, um, you know, uh, writers or, or scholars, they would come, but then we matched them with a particular community in the city, and then we would have that presentation in the community, mm -hmm. whether it was a cultural center or the public library, right, or a venue where, you know, people met. So that was a really important way for us to be able to make those connections, you know, and to be in dialogue with the community. Um, so that was, that was uh, something that I feel very proud of because that was something I could do at UIC because yeah. it was the public university in the city. Um, I was there for, for 11 years at UIC wow. and, um, and then I was recruited by Northwestern because they had just started the, they had just approved the Latino Studies program as a new program in 2009. And then in 2011, I came in as the first director. Um, and then I was able to work on it. We developed the program. We have about 50 majors and minors right now. We started with about four or five. So uh, it takes time. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort, concerted effort, and sustained effort right across the years. And then to also be able to have a stable curriculum and a curriculum that would be able to, to reflect you know, the scholarship uh, going on in Latino studies and ethnic studies. So. Yeah. Uh, so I just retired in December 31st, 2018, and, um, and I'm enjoying my retirement. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it sounds like you're still keeping engaged and, uh -huh. and yeah. uh, you know, continuing yeah. to, to just have a, you know, a whole bunch of ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I want to I take you back to a couple places okay. um, first, and, you know, given this just an amazing um, arc, and, mm -hmm. you know, for many of us too, um, as you mentioned, you know, I was there uh, in Michigan in the 90s yeah. and sort of, you know, got to see, you know, and sort of experience some of that. Mm -hmm. But prior to Indiana University, this is the first place I want to take you. Um, what were your thoughts of, of higher education in the first place? Like, what did you think of college? How did you mm -hmm. imagine yourself mm -hmm. going to a place like Indiana, especially yeah. uh, growing up in Puerto Rico? Right. Well, um, I have to say I didn't really 
care much about higher education at the time. I just need, I knew that I needed to go to college because that's what I wanted to do, but also that was my parents' expectations. Um, and I went there because of the music school. So what happened in college though, was that I learned to have to make decisions on my own, right? And so as a young woman coming from Puerto Rico, being in a huge campus with 25,000, 35,000 students, I had come from a very small Catholic high school, all girls. So it was a big change and people would ask my parents, how is she doing? Is she adapting? And I was enjoying it tremendously, right? Because I was, I could be myself. I could reimagine myself. I could reinvent myself. I could be anonymous and I didn't have that social pressure yeah. to be who I had been in Puerto Rico, right? So it allowed me to, to be somebody else and to, to construct myself in a different way. And, and I did that eventually as I moved on to grad school and, and so on. I became, from being a Puerto Rican, I became a Latina. And I say that very with pride, yeah. right? Because I was able to connect with Chicano communities, uh, not only in, in Indiana University, but when I went on to Boston, you know, my Chicano friends and people who, I, who were from Texas and from California, but who were there in Boston. And that began to expand, you know, my social network as a Puerto Rican woman. Um, but in terms of higher education, I have to say at that time, all I just wanted was to get the major and finish my requirements, right, and move on. Uh, but I had really good mentors, and I think, um, you know, the influence of uh, and the inspiration of a couple of my professors there in the Spanish department and in comparative literature uh, really took me to that next level, which was to think about the PhD, you yeah. know, and to go for it. So I don't think I would have been able to have done that. You know, I would have ended up doing something else, I don't know. But but it really inspired me to continue working on, on literature, which is what they told me, you're really good at this, you should consider moving on and getting the PhD and so on. Mm -hmm. Mentorship is such mm -hmm. a, a common and powerful thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And it, it sounds, you spoke a little bit about how much you, you passed that on. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think the other piece about identity formation, mm -hmm. and so I, this is the second place okay. I, want, I want to take okay. you. And, and you sort of, you began to transition and we started talking, mm -hmm. uh, particularly about moving from a space where you had a very strong Puerto Rican identi mm -hmm. identity mm -hmm. to one where we had to navigate that in relation to Chicano identity right. in, in particular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know when, when we were at Michigan in the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, and as you were running and starting the, the Latino Studies mm -hmm. program there, um, there was a lot of sometimes very heated conversations about what Latino meant, All right? right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so I just, I'm, I, given kind of as you've been in that moment and then you went to UIC and mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. finished up at, at Northwestern um, directing these type of programs, tell us a little mm -hmm. bit, um, I mean, and so this is also part of the career arc. As, as mm -hmm. we thought about these identities, they were done so in terms of ethnic terms, mm -hmm. right? Culture, right. music, right. religion, mm -hmm. language. Um, but there's also a component tied to racial hierarchy mm -hmm. and racial formation mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah. And I, it would be, I think our listeners would love to know kind of how you've mm -hmm. come to navigate that mm -hmm. as in thinking about the larger field of Latinx studies yeah. as it exists yeah. today. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think I'll begin with the term Latino only, mm -hmm. also, and Latinidad, because that is, like you said, it's a very contested term. Uh, I think all Latino studies programs have to make decisions about how they're going to perform this Latinidad, right? And who their communities are, what are the students, what region in the country they live in, to be able to address, right, the needs of those that particular community. So in some ways, I think that Latinidad, that Latino term itself can be elastic and flexible because 
it's not the same thing to do Latino studies in New York right now with the Mexican community coming in. They're the third largest Latino group now. Puerto Ricans are leaving, right? Yeah. So, um, and at the same time, you know, what is what does Latino studies look like in New Mexico, right? Yeah. Or in California, right? So I think like the regional differences are there. But at the same time, I think what has happened since the 90s is that the demographic diversification has really transformed our cities. And the fact is that now we have Latinos of different ethnicities and nationalities living next to each other, right? Sharing neighborhoods and sharing workplace and sharing schools. Um, and I think that is creating uh, social spaces of Latinidad that are real, are very real, and they're experienced in very social and cultural ways and all of this. And so in that way, Latino and Latinidad are not terms that in the past we used to think of them as impositions. Mm -hmm. They were umbrella terms, they were created by the market and the media, and they homogenize all of us, right? And we, we need to continue struggling for our own ethnic difference uh, to, be, to be highlighted. Uh, yes, that can still be the case in, in most cases. But at this point now, in 2019, we do have a Latinidad you know, in our communities. There, there are these spaces where people come together, right? And so what happens and how do we interact with each other, right? Um, and I think Latino studies as a program and as a, as a field of study needs to incorporate that, right, into, into the curriculum. Uh, we can no longer just talk about Mexican-American or Chicano, Puerto Rican, and Cuban as the only major groups. Central Americans have come in, and, and Salvadorans are now the third largest Latino group in the country. So, you know, the demographic shifts and the fact that Central Americans have become the most important right now population at risk, right, on the border with, yeah. the, with the immigration crisis and the family separations. So all of these things signal to the fact that we have to expand our curriculum. We need to start teaching Central Americans in the U.S. as very much as part of our courses. Um, and we're not doing that well enough yet, sure. you know, in most parts of the country. Maybe in UCLA, yeah, because you have Central American specialists there. Yeah. Uh, but again, these are the ways in which Latino studies as a field is still is very current, and it needs to change with the times, right? And it needs to address the needs of a changing population. Um, and in terms of, of race, I would say that, in fact, um, and that in fact, I mean, as, as a brown people and as mestizo people, right, um, we, don't, we really challenge always the binary of black versus white that has been the structuring, um, the structure's right to think of, about race in this country uh, historically and in, in the moment, in the contemporary moment. But I would say no, that definitely, I mean, we are challenging those notions. Uh, we are transforming, I think, the way people think about race in the United States. Um, and yet, the lingering history of our racialization, right, and our criminalization in this country as colonial subjects, right, as, uh, as subordinated peoples, as peoples who have been criminalized, you know, for crossing the border or for being brown or for being working class, right, I mean, or for speaking Spanish, mm -hmm. all the things that, that make us different and that don't allow us for others to imagine ourselves, to imagine us as Americans, as fully Americans, right? So those struggles are still there. And that is the kind of the continuum that I see in Latino studies, that we still have to deal with all that. That has not finished, and I don't think it ever will. Mm -hmm. um, and some, of course, some Latinos are more integrated than others, right, into institutions, into mainstream life and society. But in general, we are still struggling. And I think the political moment right now, you know, is a good example of how the things that we 
um, that were challenges for us since the 80s and the 90s, you know, are coming back to haunt us again, right? Uh, despite all the work we've done and despite all the progress, you know, when it comes to understanding race and to think about uh, how we teach our students, you know, to think about these things critically, yeah. um, you know, we're back, we're back to, to ground zero, right, in some <laughs> yeah. ways, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and worse, right, because it is a very, very uh, fascist moment right yeah. now. Um, but having said that, I am still like, I still get excited thinking about how the concept of Latinidad has shifted. And if you look at it at the scholarship to now, it's really fascinating because many scholars now are using the term uh, not necessarily the way it was used in the past uh, as a term of suspicion, right? Oh, we're being homogenized, we can't be Latinos. But now as a term of action, of mobilization, of political solidarity with each other, a sense of collectivity. Yeah. And, and that I think is fascinating because that means that it is a term that we are appropriating and rewriting for our own empowerment, right? And not just being victimized by a term that is being imposed from the top. Yeah. Uh, and it is real. It's a real social social reality. Uh, I myself feel very Latina because I am Puerto Rican, but I married a Mexican American man. I have uh, my children are Mexican, and I just finished writing a book about them, oh, about wow. intra Latinos, Latinos who are of mixed ethnicities or nationalities. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed 20 college students at UIC and in the Chicago area and uh, from since 2007 and then I, uh, I took those interviews and I looked at all these anecdotes about their family lives and how they negotiate their two nationalities okay. in their family lives, in their social networks and so on. Um, and, and I'm very excited to share it with, you know, with, the, with the public once it comes out in October. Um, a rich, very rich combinations in Chicago. I have Salvadoran Puerto Ricans, Ecuadorian Puerto Ricans, Mexican Guatemalans, mm -hmm. Mexican Colombianos, um, one who is Chicano, Dominican, and Puerto Rican, another who's Chileno, Colombiano. Wow. All this, one Bolivian Cuban. I mean, <laughs> what in the world does Bolivia have anything to do with Cuba, yeah. right? But again, you know, these sort of very interesting combinations from these uh, hemispheric encounters that happen in Chicago, the parents met, they get married, or they live together, and then yeah. they have children. And these children, it's like a totally new generation yeah. who totally identify with the term Latino, who claim it as themselves because they cannot choose one or the other, yeah. right, ethnicity, and who feel very comfortable, you know, uh, with that identity paradigm, so. There's a couple of fascinating, mm -hmm. I can't wait for the uh -huh. book to come out. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm wondering if you could just, you do say it's, it suggests it's a new paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, is it is it also a paradigm that's also moving kind of in tandem with sort of the, the political activism mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. you've you've talked about yeah. that's tied yeah. to the term? Well, I would say so, and um, I think Nilda Flores Gonzalez just came out with a book called Citizens But Not Americans, mm -hmm. where she looks at the millennials, sure. uh, Latino millennials, and she uh, looks at the ways in which they. Even though they're U.S. born, second, third generation, they still do not feel fully American, right, in the ways that we think about the term American. Sure. Um, but on the other hand, they also, she also argues that they use Latino for themselves and they feel comfortable with Latino identity, but they think of the Latino label as a racial label. And so again, you know, because they have been so racialized, they still continue to be racialized. So it is a term of empowerment, but it is also a reminder, right? A painful reminder of the ways in which, you know, we continue to be subordinated and marginalized and dehumanized, yeah. right, in this country. Um, 
but yeah, I think I think with the political mobilization and to see all these young people, you know, getting organized in all kinds of ways, whether it's on college campuses, uh, like what was happening now at the University of Arizona with the students who were charged for protesting, uh, ha happened at Northwestern too a couple of years ago. We had an ICE agent uh, come to campus for a class, and the Latino students protested, and they ended up getting getting. They weren't criminalized by the state police or anything, but the, the, the dean of students, you know, really disciplined them, right? And made them very, very scared about what could happen to them because they broke the rules, yeah. right? And so again, you know, what happens to free speech, you know, when you're in college campuses and then you're our own students become the criminals, yeah. right? Um, and they're, they're not seen anymore as, you know, people who, who are vulnerable, you know, vulnerable communities in our campus who want to feel safe in these campuses, despite the rhetoric, right, that yeah. comes from the top that, oh, it's a safe <laughs> campus, blah, 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 nothing like this is gonna happen. And then, oh, but that's the professor's choice. She has the right to bring whoever she wants to campus. And it's like, no, it should, it's an agreement. It should be an agreement, right, between the students and the professor yeah. to us to, you know, who you're gonna bring that will make everybody feel safe, you know? So, um, so I think this moment too, when you know our students are protesting, but they're being criminalized for their protests, and free speech is being taken away and curtailed and even questioned, right? Um, the you know white supremacy everywhere. I mean, it's just it's it's a very difficult. And then you have, n not to mention the um, the fragility of our programs and the ways in which the structures for many Latino studies programs are not sustainable, right? So what happened at Yale recently with mm -hmm. the Yale 13 yes. and all these faculty members who literally resigned from their job in the race, migration, and ethnicity program because they realized that was their only way of denouncing the current situation. They cannot hire their own. Yeah. We have the same pro problem at Northwestern. I went from being at UIC where the academic program can hire and tenure their own 100%. Oh. And, and it's still a program, but it functions like a department. I came to Northwestern, we have 14 members of, of faculty members, Latino faculty members in campus. They're all part of our governing board, but nobody had any appointment in the program. Yeah. So our teaching wow. totally is contingent on the departments, you know, on the disciplines. They, are, they don't have enough time to come to our events, right? Because I don't wanna say they're invisible, but they only show up when they have to for meetings and things like that. Um, it's very difficult, very difficult, and I felt for eight years that I was there, and it was me and the students, you know, and my assistant. Yeah. And I'm like, no, that cannot be. We need to have an intellectual community that is vibrant, and that can only happen when people feel like they belong in this program and that they have to have ownership over it. And um, eventually, students began to started getting mobilized around the need for a department status, for Latino studies and Asian American studies. Mm -hmm. And the dean finally took us seriously. And now we have our new first 100% hire in Latino studies. Wow. And we're making an offer to somebody and we hope to have that person in place by September. That, that's yeah. great. Well, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. It's yeah. So anyway, and I'm hoping that Yale will end up with, I mean, the structural changes don't have to be major. Yeah. It's just that there has to be goodwill on the part of the administration to say, yes, you can hire your own. How can you not? You're a field, you know, and you're an important field in today's world, yeah. right? So, one of the things, and again, I sort of think of, of, of when I was a graduate student mm -hmm. at Michigan, and I, I think of this now um, at this institution mm -hmm. and other institutions mm -hmm. I've been at is the power of students, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Students have, 
they don't realize it, but they, they have a ton of power. Yeah. And of yeah. course, the university knows they can also wait them out, right? Of course, yeah. Um, wait until they graduate. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Unless, so, unless you, uh, unless the students train the next generation. Exactly. Well, so, th so that's <laughs> yeah. a great insight. And, and one, one of the things I just sort of want to follow up quickly mm -hmm. on is, um, as you've as you've navigated this career arc from from graduate student mm -hmm. to now emeritus professor yeah, yeah. Uh, and everything in between, what role uh, do you think that professors have in transforming our institutions mm -hmm. and either partnering with student groups? How can yeah. we em empower our students mm -hmm. and or other ideas to yeah. to transform yeah. the institutions in the yeah. ways that you've yeah. already talked a little bit yeah. about or the need? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, definitely, I do think that students do have a lot more power than we do, than faculty members in some ways, yeah. because they are the clients, right, in this corporate university. Um, and I think because of that, they their voices are really important. They're important also for, you know, public relations, for the public image of the university, and all of that, on the one hand. However, they do come and they go, right? And, you know, some people may think, well, they're just transient. You know, they're here for years, and then they move on. But it is, it, it is those important historical moments, right, that actually allow the university to create the kinds of institutions and spaces and structures that were not there before. So at Northwestern, for example, they just celebrated the 50th anniversary of, of the takeover of the black movement, right? When they de de developed the Black House, when they developed African American Studies Department, and they took over the Bursar's Office building or something, right? And there were all these celebrations. They brought in the old activists, the alumni, you know, they had all these amazing activities. And meanwhile, the Latino students and the Asian American students are fighting for the same thing, right? Sure. For Latino studies and Asian American studies. So those are the kinds of ironies, right, that, yeah. that we have to also kind of um, acknowledge, right? That it's like you're celebrating this 50 years ago, but you're not paying attention to what's happening now, right? Yeah. And that's, it's the same thing. The students are fighting for new spaces and new kinds of structures. For us, I think, for faculty, there is a very important element uh, and power that we have, which is in transforming the curriculum. And when you begin to teach courses differently, when you begin to add new courses to you know, the traditional curriculum of either a department or creating new courses for a Latino studies program or an interdisciplinary program or ethnic studies program, then you are beginning to create something you know, new. And, and, and eventually, you know, that has to expand, it has to grow, or it, it grows organically because students tell each other and then somebody takes this class and they tell somebody else and before you know it, there's a really important need and um, demand right, for some of these classes. Um, we have a, a colleague at Northwestern who is there as, an, as a lecturer but he has had a tremendous impact on our students because he teaches, it's not a community service learning class, but it's like a participatory action research okay. uh, course where he takes students, college students, to work with high school students uh, in the city. So they have gone to Humboldt Park, they have done Evanston High School, different high schools every year, and, and it's a way for them to engage with high school students to create their own curriculum, to think about ethnic studies and identity and culture and so on. and. Um, and that project in itself has been so, so, um, it has been so wonderful that students, all these students want to take it all the time. 
and uh, now we finally gave them credit for it. You know, we can do it as an independent study so that students can get credit for the yeah. work because it is it is a lot of work. It is very demanding in terms of their time, uh, but they also need to be recognized, you know, for, for the work they're doing. So again, I mean, and these kinds of, and this is not necessarily new, community service learning has been part of, you know, of the university for a long time. Uh, but again, you know, when you do something that works and that students are feeling really engaged about and that it excites them and inspires them, then you want to stabilize that. You want to implement that. You want to institutionalize a, a course like that. Um, and so again, in Latino studies, we have the opportunity and the flexibility to offer different types of new courses. Uh, even if they're taught once and then we find out if they're good then we can continue teaching them but then you have to get the funding and, and so on. But that's the role of the director, right? That's yeah. the role of the administration that you work then with the deans to make sure that these things can be continued. Um, so I would say that in terms of curriculum and of course our research um, more than anything but I think our research informs the curriculum and the curriculum is where the, mo the site in which we can actually share our knowledge with students, right, and transform their way of thinking, right, and create that kind of consciousness raising that students need to become more political and more active and mobilized in their lives. So. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. I'll put a plug in mm -hmm. for our listeners. We just started a critical race and ethnic studies program. Oh, so great. Congratulations. So, so thank you. Yeah. It's been yeah. a, a long time coming. Yeah. Um, and so once these programs begin, you know, they'll, they'll continue growing yeah. because, because the moment you know, requires it. Absolutely, so, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I have a few mm -hmm. uh, more questions for okay. you. Um, one of them is actually to kind of build and, and get your thoughts on, on specifically the ways that institutions of higher education navigate this fine line between what I've sort of thought about is diversity mm -hmm. and discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so the ways that they support and value diversity mm -hmm. and equity and inclusion work at the same time there are all sorts of ways that uh, policies, practices, and even history right. Im Im impact or undermine that work. Right. And mm -hmm. um, as you know, both of our universities, Northwestern mm -hmm. University mm -hmm. and the University of Denver were founded mm -hmm. by John Evans. Mm -hmm. And I know both universities mm -hmm. have spent a, a considerable amount of time in the mm -hmm. last several years right. trying to, to reckon with the fact of what it means to have a founder who was both an abolitionist, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. also someone who openly advocated for the, the, the eradication of indigenous yeah. peoples yeah. from what was conceptualized as the American West, right? right? And you know, particularly mm -hmm. in this place of Denver, this is, mm -hmm. and uh, same thing in, in wow. Illinois and Chicago, yeah. right? Indigenous yeah. lands. In Evanston. Yeah, exactly. Just named after him. <laughs> yes, exactly. Town of Evans. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, any mm -hmm. any thoughts or wisdom mm -hmm. on how scholars like those of us committed to anti-racist mm -hmm. or anti-colonial work mm -hmm. and scholarship navigate these associations mm -hmm. um, at places mm -hmm. like Northwestern mm -hmm. or DU? Yeah. Um, or frankly, dozens of other, hundreds of other colleges and universities, yeah, yeah. I can imagine the same sorts of conversations that happen with Confederate statues, yeah, right? right, and on yeah. many campuses yeah. and universities. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's a burgeoning, uh, there's sort of an emerging scholarship about pioneer statues, mm -hmm. uh, statues mm -hmm. being no different than mm -hmm. Confederate yeah. statues. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we have pioneer in the name here uh, in terms of our identity at the University oh, yeah. of Denver. Okay. So I'm just yeah. curious, yeah. any thoughts yeah. or wisdom as, as yeah. we navigate yeah. that? No, that's a really interesting question because these are still at the end elite institutions, you yeah. know, and institutions of power. 
and, and the origins and their histories are very much based on powerful people, the aristocracy, right? Uh, people like John Evans, John Evans, who was governor, right? Wasn't yeah. he governor here? Yeah, in territorial governor, correct. Right, and and he did participate. He was complicit one way or another in the Sandy Creek massacre. Mm -hmm. So, um, how do we deal with that? And I think it is a difficult question, but I think bringing up those histories is the first step, right? And I know at Northwestern. Uh, right now we have a Native American and Indigenous uh, Research Center and we hired a couple people. There's been cluster hires going on for Native American Studies scholars. And that came as a direct result of undergrad students who did historical work on John Evans and discovered his complicity and his participation in the Sandy Creek Massacre. They brought it up to the provost. And, and they actually did their own protests. You know, they did a couple of manifestations and demonstrations uh, on campus, very peaceful, but you know, very powerful, and uh, got the attention of the administration. The provost brings them in and they say, look, you know, this is a problem. We should change all the names of the buildings that have John Evans, like the Alumni Center, and you know, whatever other places in the Student Center. And uh, the provost is like, wait a minute, you know, well, why should I believe you guys? Okay, I'm gonna set up a, a committee of historians. So he invited Native American historians, other American historians who were familiar with the, with the, with the times and with John Evans, and he brought them together. Um, they spent a whole year uh, doing the research, and they put together a report, and the report basically it's like the Mueller report, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Didn't come to any particular conclusion. Mm -hmm. He basically said, yes, he was complicit, but he was not the major instigator or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, he, he benefited from it, but he was, you know, he wasn't the active person behind it, whatever. So, so it left it kind of like, more or less, in the same thing, right? Very lukewarm, kind of like, well, he was and he wasn't. Yeah. So you can't, you can't, it's okay. You can keep the John Evans name in the building, right? Whatever. Um, but what came out as a result of that is that then the provost said, okay, well, you know, let's start thinking about how we can compensate, you know, for that past and that history. So let's talk about Native American studies. And that's, and then the conversations began. And they actually brought in a council of elders, Native American elders from all over the country to talk to the university about what they would like to see, you know, Northwestern do. And as a result of that, you know, the idea that there should be applied research so that it can benefit the Native American communities, uh, not only in the region, but also across the country, um, and things like that. So it wasn't just like, let's just do an academic program for a major and a minor. No, mm -hmm. let's just also talk about the, the purposes of research. And, and they have followed that, and I think they just got a Mellon grant, you know, with lots of money, and they're really moving forward as, as a community, not only intellectual community, but as a community of people who are doing research and who are in, in constant dialogue with, with the Native communities in, the, in Chicago and in the region, yeah. yeah. So that has been, I think, that to me was a really good way of showing how the student activism can begin a process. Um, but there was also, I think, good faith effort on the part of the administration, you know, to make that happen. They still have not gotten rid of the name, yeah. John Evans, and I don't know if they ever will. But the fact that there's that archive now and that history, right, yeah. of how that was contested and the way that his presence was. And, and again, I think this goes back to the, the skills that we teach our students. We teach them how to read critically. 
and how to do that alternative history, right? And if these students had not done that, you know, that would not have been even, you know, we would not even have Native American studies right now in Princeton. Uh, but that, that I think, and I'm thinking too of Georgetown with the slavery, the heritage mm -hmm. of slavery, sure. uh, in places like Georgetown where the students actually just voted, the student body voted to increase their fees so that, um, what was it, so that they could, University could pay reparations. Yeah, right? so that the yeah. university could pay reparations. So I mean, it's it, the students are willing to do it, yeah. you know. And I think it's just up to the administration and the faculty members to be able to support these efforts because they are important, you yeah. know, when you think about them historically and politically. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for yeah. sharing those yeah. shots, yeah. those thoughts. We have we had our own report as well uh -huh. um, that came to a different legal conclusion. Oh, really? And so uh -huh. I always tell my law students to read oh, both wow. reports. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, so Did you have them read the Northwestern yes, report? Yes, yeah. Oh, okay. So um, the Northwestern report uh, examined the question of culpability based upon the uh -huh. prevailing military law norms of, of the oh, time. Okay. And the DU report did it with, through an international law lens and came to oh. a very different conclusion. Oh, okay. And so what did you, he was culpable. He was found, yeah, culpable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah. some, many of the same recommendations, yeah. but it doesn't right. feel like we're anywhere near yeah. as far along as, as you all oh, at, really? uh, oh. at Northwestern. So this yeah. will be yeah. great for our listeners to hear yeah. And, yeah. and again, think of, of the, the role yeah. of, of students exactly. in particular. Yeah. No, no, definitely. So two more questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Rage is the title of this podcast, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's certainly been a structure in which, as you've already seen, we mm -hmm. sort of think about um, a current that mm -hmm. flows through kind of our work and our mm -hmm. and our space in the mm -hmm. academy mm -hmm. as, as race scholars, mm -hmm. as, as scholars mm -hmm. of color, mm -hmm. um, as those that are navigating an identity that hasn't normally mm -hmm. been part of mm -hmm. the university. Right. So I'm just curious your thoughts. What, is, what does rage mean for you? Uh-huh. Anger. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I would think there's so much work that has been done on this already. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna say anything new, but I always feel like as a woman of color, and as a Latina in particular, um, since I was a grad student, I had to control my anger, right? I had to practice how I was gonna bring up a point or an argument in class. Uh, you know, how was I gonna be critical of the canon, right? Uh, with professors and, and classmates, you know, who are not even thinking about these issues. Um, so, so it, you know, the whole, the whole association of anger you know, with women of color in particular and scholar and people of color, you know, it's we we usually get criminalized for that, right? We get we're considered hysterical, we're considered irrational, you know, we can't control ourselves, you know, all of these associations and imagery that is so problematic. And so so right now, I mean I, I feel really good that there's been like an attention paid to emotions, right? Mm -hmm. With affect affect theory and the work of, of Sarah Ahmed and other, other feminists of color that have done a lot of work too on anger and anger and the ways that it ends up, you know, translating into social change and into political mobilizations and so on. Um, I, I, is that what you're talking about, yeah. race in that way? Or are you thinking about just race? Uh, I mean, what the acronym stands for? It, it's funny because we were trying to come up with an acronym for rage uh -huh. and we think we've, we're still working on that. Oh, okay. But Okay. But I think that's yeah. right. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. it certainly mm -hmm. seems mm -hmm. to be something as as many of those I've been engaged conversation mm -hmm. with, yeah. right? That mm -hmm. drives our work, yeah, right? It, it motivates yeah. our work. Yeah. It's 
um, it structures our work, yeah. right? And and I think, you know, when people say, oh, this was a great article, whatever, things I wrote maybe in the 90s or early 2000s, and I'm like, I remember that article, and I wrote it because I was so angry at a colleague, yeah. you know, or I was so angry at these discussions we were having in Michigan. We had major discussions yeah. about should Latino studies be about theory because that's what's going to legitimate us in the eyes of the dean and the administration, right. or should we be doing community work? And I'm like... The theory is in the community. You yeah. can't separate those two, right? But those kinds of conversations and debates, I still remember. I was so angry, yeah. you know? And, and it was my way of surviving also was to say, I need to write about this, right? And that anger fueled, you know, some really important pieces that I've written about, you know, Latino studies and about, you know, what does it mean and where are we going and all of this. Yeah. So so I think, yeah, that it, it plays a very important role. Um, my fear now too with, with rage and anger is that um, I see so many of our young students, you know, uh, with anxiety, with depression, yeah. you know, they have a really hard time feeling like they belong in our campuses and especially in places like Northwestern that are elite private universities. Yeah. And so it really is difficult for them to navigate their presence, you know, in these spaces. And, um, and to me, that's also like anger. They are so angry you know, yeah. at the world, and they're angry at people around them, and they're angry at the institution, and how do you channel that anger so that it actually helps you survive, but it, that you also end up thriving as a human being, yeah. right? And it's not easy. It's not easy yeah. to do so. And, and I would add, I think you've, you've summed up very nicely mm -hmm. what many people have said, and I think mm -hmm. the final piece is, is to in how you funnel it and use it as fuel to be transformative. Yeah, right? exactly. In the institutions yeah. that w yeah. and the spaces yeah. we occupy. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and and, and reoccupy, right? Exactly. <laughs> in, in those ways. Well, mm -hmm. any final thoughts or affirmations yeah. uh, that you want to share yeah. with with our listeners? Well, I was happy to meet you again and yes. to see you after all these years <laughs> and to realize too that our struggles are ongoing, yeah. that they continue, and you know we move on. Younger generations come in too. And I think it's our responsibility as more senior faculty members and people who have been in the trenches for decades uh, to be able to make sure that the younger scholars get the support that they need to do their work, but also that they learn the responsibilities and uh, the, yeah, the responsibilities that we all have, you know, to improve and transform the institutions that we inhabit. Um, and I think that's, that's something that's ongoing and it's never gonna end, I think, you know, Whatever happens to the political, you know, scene in the country and to the White House and, and whoever gets elected in 2020, I think it is important to continue thinking about what our, our role is in, in the university and on campuses, uh, but also in, in, in the world and in the country, right? And I think that we need to, to continue struggling. Palante and, and la, como se dice, la, la, la lucha continua, right? Sí, sí, yeah. yes. 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 Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank well, you thank you that. so much, yeah. Tom, Yeah, for this opportunity. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so we have reached not only the end of another episode of Rage, but the end of season one, um, which is our podcast brought to you by iRise at the University of Denver. Uh, our next season will be coming out in the fall of 2019, and we are going to engage some of these questions, but from the perspective of a... Uh, community action and community participation and uh, community engagement and so we will continue to build on these conversations uh, we hope that you can connect with us at www.du.edu forward slash iRise for all of our initiatives 
um, and the ways that we connect this to research, scholarship, and teaching. And while there, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to hear about our initiative to create new pathways, partnerships, and practices to racial justice in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West. Thank you for listening.